uh, Sister Barb and Sister Sandy. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, she has, uh, she needs deliverance from alcohol. She needs salvation. She, she needs a healing. Uh, the alcohol has fairly well eaten her insides up. Uh, and so she, she very desperately needs our prayers. Let's pray for her. Let's pray for Randy. Uh, he's kind of taking care of things while she's in the hospital, trying to take care of her. Uh, so he has, a lot of, he has a lot of pressure on his shoulders right now. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, let's pray for these. These are, these are very real needs, folks. They're very real needs, and only God can answer them. That's why we're turning to Him right now. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. You are a true and a faithful God. The promises that You have given us in Your Word are yea and amen. Hallelujah, Jesus. We turn to You right now, Lord Jesus, for these impossible situations, because that's exactly what You specialize in. Things that are impossible with us are very possible with You. We pray for Marquise, Lord. We pray for him, for his family, for his friends, those that he's in contact with. You have placed something in his heart, something in his spirit. And I pray, Lord, that that seed, wherever it was planted, would germinate and come to fruition. That he would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus. He's not here by accident. He doesn't feel that way by accident. Continue to lead him and guide him into all truth, I pray. Save him. Save his family. In Jesus' name. I pray, Lord Jesus, for Kirsten. I pray, Lord, for, uh, also for Randy. God, that you, would, that you would deliver Kirsten, I pray, miraculously from bondage of alcoholism. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would deliver her, that you would free her completely, break the chains that bind her. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would fill her with the gift of the Holy Ghost as she comes to a, to a saving knowledge of you. Lead her to a place of repentance, of the salvation, I pray. I pray for Randy, Lord Jesus, that you would see what you do in her life, that you would feel your presence, that he would hear your voice speaking. Lead him also to a place of repentance, of the salvation, I pray. Hallelujah. And we give you glory and we give you honor because it's by your stripes that we're healed. And it's because of the finished work of Jesus at Calvary that we experience in this dispensation full salvation. Hallelujah, Jesus. I pray for our service this evening that you would prepare hearts and minds to receive the spirit of truth. That, you would re that we would receive the spirit of wisdom tonight through the precious word of God. And that your great and mighty name would be glorified in our midst. Hallelujah, Jesus. Let's worship God for just a minute. Can we, church? Hallelujah, Jesus. You are a mighty God. You are a glorious Savior. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're the Alpha and the Omega, which was and which is and which is to come, the Almighty. Hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. I laud and I magnify You tonight. I worship You for Your mighty acts. I worship You because of who You are. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are the Lord our God. You sit upon the throne all by Yourself. There is no one else. Thank You, Jesus, for Your manifest presence here. Thank You, Jesus, for Your so great faithfulness to us. Thank You, Lord, that You hear and answer our cries. That when we turn to You in prayer, it is not in vain. But things happen. Things happen when we assume an attitude of prayer. When we come before You, when we seek Your face, we humble ourselves before You in prayer and in supplication. Hallelujah, Jesus. It is not in vain. He is no fool who puts his hope in you. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness to us. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. You're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of all our praise. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence in this place tonight. Oh, thank You, Jesus. Thank You, Jesus. Thank You, Jesus. Thank You, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. He's a faithful God. 
He's altogether faithful to us. When we cry out to Him, when we make our petitions and our requests known unto Him, He hears and He answers. It's certainly not always on our timetable. And it's certainly not always the way we think He's going to answer. But He always answers. He's always faithful. Praise God. Praise God. Things are stirring, church. Your prayers are going up and they're making a difference. They always do. Prayers always make a difference. Amen. Praise God. God bless you. Thank you for interceding tonight. You can be seated. Amen. Tonight we're going to continue our study on Genesis 1-11. through We're going to be discussing the creation week tonight. The creation week. Some time ago we, uh, we talked about a couple scriptures in Proverbs. Proverbs, I didn't give you this, uh, so don't worry about it. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. And then verse 5 goes on to say, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Now what does the Bible mean when they refer to a fool? Well, God doesn't resort to name-calling. The Bible says that a fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. That's who a fool is scripturally. One who professes that there is no God. And so, one of the purposes I have for this lesson is to be able to answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Amen. These, uh, uh, the lessons that we're going to go through, some of them will be a bit technical. I'm trying to tone it down as much as possible. But um, I want us to know, and I want us to understand that If we have a proper worldview, and the proper worldview is that we accept the absolute authority and inerrancy of Scripture, that the Bible is our ultimate authority, everything else is filtered through that. Everything else is is, uh, relegated to a secondary, at best, position in our lives. If at any point we ever get to the place where we allow something to supersede Scripture and we start judging Scripture based on that higher standard that we set for ourselves, folks, at some point you're done. At some point you're going to be led into error. You will. And the problem isn't going to be that you lack exegetical or humanutical process. You don't understand how to properly interpret Scripture. The problem is, your worldview is now skewed. The problem is, you're allowing something else to supersede the authority of Scripture. That's the problem in our society today. It's not that the Bible has errors in it, although people will try to tell you that. It's not that well, we can't confirm this, that, or the other, so it can't be true. That's not the problem at all. The problem is that people accept other authorities over that of Scripture. That's the root of the cause. That's the root of the problem. So when we look at the creation account, Genesis all the way through chapter 1 and the beginning of verse 2, Let's just read Genesis 1 and 31, and then we'll jump into Genesis 2, verses 1 through 2. At the conclusion of God's creation, it says, God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended His work which He had made, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had made. Now, as far as the creation week goes, or if I can extrapolate the creation or the, the advent of everything that we see, the, the formation of the universe in more general terminology, when we, 
when we think about that, there are only really two accounts, at least in our culture, our society today, that people will subscribe to. The first, of course, is God's eyewitness account as recorded in Genesis. We have only one living witness of what happened in Genesis chapter 1, and this is what he's telling us. That eyewitness is God, by the way. The other account that we have is man's subjective hypothesis as to how the universe came into existence without needing to call a supernatural being into the, pic, into, into the picture. It happened by purely natural processes, and um, we don't have to resort to the miraculous or a god or anything like that. Now, I said this may get a bit technical in nature. I've, I have toned it down. Uh, but please consider this. The vast majority of your coworkers, neighbors, and friends believe the evolutionary story in some form, fashion, or other. Even if they're a Christian, quote-unquote. If they're what we would know as a progressive or liberal Christian, they almost certainly believe in some form of evolution. We're going to talk about compromising positions where we try to mix Scripture and science and come up with a homogenous, work, workable whole. The majority of Christians, those who claim to be Christians, the majority believe in one form or another that at least God used evolution to bring everything into being. This is what your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren are being taught in school. If they're going to public school. 999 times out of 1,000, they're taught evolution. All the way from preschool. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to communicate with them where they're at? Because, because the problem is worldviews and not necessarily interpretation of Scripture, I mean, we can, we can sit down with them and show them a Bible study and show them all the Scriptures that say God created everything. But that's not going to mean anything to them if they don't accept Scripture. Does that make sense? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to answer their honest questions from Scripture? When we start telling them that dinosaurs did exist and they existed with man. They're going to be, well, I've never heard that before. They existed tens of millions of years before mankind ever came on the scene. And we can show them Scripture. The Bible talks about Leviathan, Behemoth, etc., etc. Dinosaurs are in the Bible. And they did exist with mankind. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to present that to someone? Wouldn't it be more effective reaching people with the gospel if we knew what they believed and why? Where their starting position is? Well, we know where they're coming from. When we know where they're starting from, now we know how to get them to where they need to be. If I have no clue what they believe or, or why they're doing what they do, I mean, I can look at their actions, but actions are very rarely indicative of the core problem. We need to get to the root of the issue. When we see Jesus ministering to people, He didn't put band-aids on things. He got to the root cause. The Bible says the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to the root. It cuts to the heart of the issue. And we need to be able to wield that effectively. Okay, faith versus science. Many would have us believe this is a battle between faith and science. And we're, Remember, we're talking about Genesis 1-11. through 11. <clears throat> When we start getting into these kinds of topics, creation, evolution, People will always say faith versus science. Is that true? Is that what this is? 
Faith, of course, being defined as a blind, unreasoning faith that will ignore or even contradict logic, science, common sense, all of that. That's what people typically mean when they say faith. Science, of course, is an impassioned, objective search for truth, following the evidence wherever it leads. Is that true? Neither one are true. They're both false. In reality, this is a battle between two faith systems, two religions. Secular humanism is a religion. They'll deny it, but it is. It requires faith to believe in its precepts. It has a priesthood just like we do. The scientists, the media, the national public school system. Not necessarily the teachers. There are a lot of good teachers, and I want to keep saying that. There are a lot of good teachers in the public school system. Absolutely there are. And if they, if, if, if they were allowed just a little bit more leeway, I think they could do a whole lot more. <clears throat> but the system that they're a part of, that's what I'm talking about. It has a doctrine, and it requires obedience and submission to its doctrine. If you don't believe that, ask any scientist who's ever dared to question it. They are defunded. Their papers will not be published. They will be demoted at the university. And they have an object of worship as well. Man. Man's intellect. Man is getting bigger, better, faster, and stronger as evolution progresses us toward its ultimate goal where we become gods. Science, properly understood, is derived from the truths of Scripture. Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 says this, "...that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding." to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. The name of God being Jesus, the name of the Father being Jesus, Christ we know is Jesus. So we're talking about Jesus here. Verse 3, In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Back in the day, scientists believed that. They took that literally. So when they started examining creation, they started looking at various uh, patterns in nature. They started with the assumption that God created everything, and He did so for a reason. That He is a God of order, not chaos. He's a God of law, not rebellion. And with these basic understandings of the universe's Creator, they went on to explore and to test and to discover certain things about God's creation. Because they understood that in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Certainly not in man. Alright, we find the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. We've already read Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Hebrews 11.3 says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. In other words, He created everything out of absolutely nothing. Psalm 33.6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. Continues in verse 9, For He spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Nehemiah 9 and 6 says this, Thou, even Thou art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. Revelation 4.11 concludes by saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. 
For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So the Bible seems to indicate in no uncertain terms that there is a creator to all of this, and that creator is God. Does anybody get any other conclusion from those, those verses? It seems plain to me that the Bible speaks of God as creator. Old Testament, New Testament, they seem to agree that God is our creator. And a normal reading of the Scripture, anybody comes to the Scripture and just reads it normally, that's the conclusion they'll come to. And again, the problem comes when I start thinking that there is a higher authority than Scripture. Let's say, for example, science. If I believe science is a higher authority than Scripture, then when science tells me something, I need to reconcile it with Scripture. And if I can't, well, then the Scripture is wrong. That's how that concludes, folks. If I reverse the process, if Scripture is my highest authority, then it will supersede science. And if science says something is wrong in Scripture, I'm going to say that's impossible. It can't be wrong. You've got to have your data wrong. You've got to have your situation over there. That's wrong. But this isn't wrong. And at first blush, that may seem like blind faith. But every worldview starts with a presupposition. The only difference between our worldview and any other worldview is that we have logical, rational, cogent reasons to believe the way we do. Please see other messages on that. I don't have time to get into that, but I can demonstrate that. It's not that hard. Okay, why am I getting into all this? Let's talk about one Hebrew word that we find in Genesis chapter 1. That word is yom. That word can mean day, daylight, dawn, lifetime, morning, indiscriminate periods of time, long periods of time. So when it says, for example... In uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. The sixth yom. Does that mean a 24-hour period day? Does that mean a long period of time? Does that mean an indiscriminate period of time? How are we to know? How can we determine that? Well, Understanding how the Hebrew word is used in context is key. And I could spend half my lesson going through a deep exegesis on this word, but I'm not going to. I will just render the conclusions, and you're just going to have to trust me. If you want, I can give you some links, and you can look at the whole process. But, for our purposes tonight... Uh, we see, first of all, that Jesus took Genesis as literal history. And we talked about this last week. Taking the Genesis account as literal history, or is it an allegory? Is it just a story that represents concepts or ideals that we should attain to today? Adam wasn't really a, a literal person. He just represented the beginning of the human race as it evolved from an ape. Satan wasn't a literal figure in history. He just is a representation of the concept of evil. That's what I mean by taking Genesis as an allegory. We see that Jesus took Genesis as literal history, not allegorical. Matthew 19 and 4 says, He answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? He's referring to Adam and Eve. He's referring to Genesis. 
The Apostle Paul took Genesis as literal history and not allegorical. I'll just read a few scriptures. I could have pulled out a lot. Romans 5 and 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, who is he referring to here? He's referring to Adam right now. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. And the Adam he's referring to is not a representation of the human race. He's referring to a literal human being that existed in history. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9 says, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Again, referring to Adam and Eve. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now that particular, that idea, that concept of death, that's going to become important later. But in this verse, he's referring to a literal Adam that existed in history. And he says, Christ is like him, except the way he should have been initially. The second Adam was what the first Adam should have been, but failed. 1 Timothy 2, 12-14 says, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to use of authority over the man. That's not my point. Um, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Might have to teach on that sometime. But in any case, um, he's referring to Adam and Eve. A literal Adam. A literal Eve. Okay. Something else I want to point out is there is no classical rabbinic. I think that's how you say it. I read all these words, folks, and I, I know how to use them in context, but... I never hear him spoken, so I don't always know how to pronounce them. <laughs> I need to look these up. Anyway, uh, there is no classical rabbinic, rabbinic support for an ancient universe. All the classical rabbis, all through history, uh, support a strict literal interpretation of Genesis 1. 24-hour period uh, days. That's how they all interpret it. All the ancient translations and paraphrases, such as the Aramaic Targums, Take the words at face value and translate them as days with no hint that they might mean ages. All right, so the only conclusion that you can come to exegetically or, or studying the Scripture properly is that Yom in Genesis 1 is meant to be used as a literal 24-hour period day. The only way you can arrive at any other conclusion is eisegetically or inserting your own ideas into the text and coming up with your own conclusion. So why is all this important? Okay, let's look at some of the conclusions that people come to when they interpret Yom as anything other than a 24-hour period day. These are several theories. There are probably others, but these are the most popular. Okay, the day-age theory. The idea that Yom in this context means an indeterminate amount of time. This is one of the most popular theories out there looking to explain Scripture from a scientific perspective. Also included under this is the theory of progressive creationism, in which God creates the major types of the plants and animals at the beginning of the sixth day, and then waits and watches as they evolve naturally within their groups until at the end of this lengthy period, referred to as the sixth day, God closes it out by creating man out of the dust by decree, by fiat, as we read in a, in a literal interpretation. So day-age, just remember, each day is an age. It's not a 24-hour period day. Gap theory. This is the first one I, I was introduced to as a young Christian. The idea that there is a long period of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. This theory states that the universe was already in existence for an indeterminate duration before the creation week began. Thus, we have allowance for a very old earth, but are still able to maintain God's recent miraculous creation of mankind. So that seems to reconcile those two. Other versions of this theory state, 
This is the one I was exposed to. That the universe was created fully formed and populated by a pre-Adamic race, only to be decimated by a cataclysmic war between God and Satan. This war left the earth a wasteland or formless and void. This seeks to explain why we find fossilized dinosaur bones that seem to be millions of years old. According to this theory, the recent creation week would be a recreation or a restoration of a world that was once destroyed. Now, what biblical evidence do we have for this? Okay, if we look at Genesis 1.28, it says, God blessed them, God said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Well, replenish means to fill it back up, meaning it was once full. No, that's not what the word means. <clears throat> and this is, this is one case where I'll grant you that the King James English is a little bit difficult to understand. Because in 1611, replenish meant to fill. If you look at most other translations, it will say to fill, not to fill again. Okay? So, this word means to fill, not to fill again. First, Second Peter 3.6 says, Where, Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. It speaks of the world that then was. Okay, in this theory, they interpret the Scripture as being uh, reference to the original creation. But if we look at it in context, it's very obviously referring to the world that was before Noah's flood. Here is an example of uh, someone who believes in the gap theory, their method of Bible interpretation. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Okay. Here we see death before sin. Or, I'm sorry, uh, sin first, then death. That's how we see it in Scripture. Because... Death is the punishment for sin. According to Romans 5.12, this person comments on the Scripture and says this, and I quote, But under Adam's feet, entombed in the sedimentary rocks of the planet, was God's testimony to the reality of the existence of death long before Adam. The fossil record, the evidence of a previous world that was destroyed and wiped off the face of the old earth. And this is a distressing example of the gap theory method of Bible interpretation or any method of interpretation that seeks to insert our own ideas into Scripture. The author is saying, in effect, Scripture says death came through Adam, but science says it came earlier. So we ought to change our interpretation of Scripture because science is our ultimate authority after all. Now, why is this a problem, this death before sin? doesn't seem like that big a deal. Who cares? We know that people die, and we know Jesus died for me, and that should be enough, right? Well, I hope that's not enough. Because remember, I said in the first lesson, salvation, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that didn't happen in a vacuum. It's built on something. If death comes before sin, then death is not the punishment for sin, but a natural part of God's creation, right? If things died before Adam even came on the scene, then death isn't a result of sin, right? Because even while Adam and Eve were perfect, sinless, there were still things dying. Is that scriptural? That is not scriptural. If death comes before sin, then Christ's death on the cross was a complete waste. It was absolutely meaningless. Because they're all, it's a part of His creation from the very beginning. If that's the case, why would He have had to die? Death isn't a punishment for sin. 
Death was already there before sin. That's why it's such a big deal, folks. He died in our place to pay the price for our sins. If death is not the punishment for sin, then why did Jesus Christ die on a cross? And if this is the case, the basis of the gospel is undone. And the gospel is utterly irrelevant. That's why it's important to establish where death comes into this process. Before or after sin. Because if death is a result of sin, then death is the punishment for sin. And if death is the punishment for sin, then then I absolutely need Jesus to die in my place. Otherwise, I'm without hope. But if it's the other way around, then it doesn't matter if He dies or not. And the Gospel is, is a fairy tale. It's irrelevant. That's why this matters, folks. Our salvation depends on it. It literally depends on it. So when someone tells me that there was millions of years of fossils underneath Adam's feet, i got to cry foul on that. Theistic evolution is the theory that the entire creation account is not to be taken literally, but we allegorize the entire thing. Evolution is absolutely true. It's an established fact. And God just simply gave it a divine nudge here and there so that evolution would end up where He wants it. But everything evolved generally by natural processes over millions and billions of years. God would just every once in a while nudge the process, making sure it stays in the right areas. Is that scriptural? How would we get this kind of interpretation of Scripture? How would we arrive at this conclusion? How people arrive at this conclusion is Science is up here. Scripture is down here. And where the two disagree, science is right, and Scripture needs to be made to fit. That's how we arrive at that kind of interpretation. This view pretty much throws out all methods of interpretation uh, and serves to destroy the authority of Scripture. Scripture is now just a book completely subservient to scientific discovery as it evolves, as, as we discover things. There is no real difference between the theistic evolutionist and the secular evolutionist, except uh, in uh, maybe the words they use. But at the heart of their belief systems, science is king. Humanism is king. They just, they want the Bible in there as well. I don't know why. At this point, I wouldn't know why they'd want it at all. All right, apparent age theory. The idea that God created the universe with the appearance of age. Because science has determined the age of the universe is around 15 to 20 billion years old, Scripture gives us a solid 6,000 years. We've got to reconcile Scripture with science. After all, God created Adam with the appearance of age, right? At one day old, he was a full adult. Appearance of age. So if God did that with Adam, if God did that with Eve, did that with all the animals, the plants, they all had appearance of age. Like they'd been there for a long time. Couldn't he have done that with the rest of his creation? Well, no. It falls apart in a few areas. One, it makes blind speculation upon Scripture. Something entirely outside of the revelation God has chosen to give us. Okay, what I mean by that is that uh, our understanding of who God is, who He's revealed Himself to be in Scripture, precludes something like that. If God made the universe to appear older than it actually is, that makes God guilty of deception at best.
a liar at worst. Well, what about the appearance of age with Adam? All the plants, all that. Yes, he was created as a fully mature adult human. But that doesn't mean that his metabolic, his cellular functions, uh, that his, his DNA, his genes, would indicate the appearance of age as well. His physical form was a full adult. But if they would have had the technology or, or the desire to look at all those things, I would speculate that everything inside was one day old. And the universe, although it looks like it's very old, and parts of it, they seem to be very old. Maybe we'll get into that discussion in, in later lessons. The light coming to us from distant galaxies is, according to all the scientists that I keep track of, secular and Christian, billions of light years away. It would have taken the light billions of years to get here. So how do we explain that and have a 6,000-year-old Earth? Good question. I'll explain that in, a, in another lesson. But the explanation is pretty fascinating, actually. All right. Um, so, this universe has the appearance of age, but it is not that old. The, the apparent age theory does not hold up. It doesn't hold up to science, and it doesn't hold up to Scripture. All right, punctuated 24-hour theory. This is the idea that God... I actually never heard of this until just very recently. The idea that God created everything in literal 24-hour periods of time, but let each day stew for eons before moving on to the next day. So in other words, God created uh, everything on day one, separated the light from the dark. That was a 24-hour period day. But then it was a very long period of time before we got to day two. Again, there's no good reason to subscribe to this theory in light of a solid, literal interpretation of Scripture. Only by inserting our preconceived ideas into the text can we arrive at anything like this. Scientific creationism. Now, I included this. This is actually correct. This is the idea that science actually does demonstrate a strict literal interpretation of Genesis 1. And that we have good reasons to believe that we should take Genesis literally. A scientific creationist is, is someone that, that uses science to demonstrate that a literal interpretation of Scripture is actually true. But I wanted to throw this in here. Uh, it, ca it can be very helpful, and it's a good place to start for some people. If you demonstrate to someone, because most people, honestly, most people are very fair-weather evolutionists. They believe in evolution because that's all they've ever heard. That's what they were taught. They don't know why they believe in it. If you ask them to explain it, they couldn't be. They would wouldn't be able to. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians like that too. So why do you believe that? Because the Bible says, "Where?" I'll get back to you. <clears throat> As an aside. I hope that we're able to explain our worldview, that we're able to explain why we believe what we do. Because, church, we have excellent reasons to believe why we do. We have excellent reasons, cogent reasons, logical reasons, solid, biblical reasons to believe what we do. And they're very easy to explain to someone. You don't need a degree in logic. You don't need a degree in philosophy. You don't need a degree in in uh, exegesis or, or, or Bible languages. You don't need any of that. The explanations are simple. It's not, it's not bad at all. But these people that believe in, in evolution, most of them, that's all I know. It's all I've heard. So when you start explaining things like, well, yeah, but actually science is showing us this. Science shows us that uh, 
all of this, all of this wasn't caused because of millions of years of, of weathering and, and all of that. It was caused by a flood in just a few weeks. And I can show you a couple things why we believe that. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. <clears throat> so, for some, place, for some people, showing them the evidences is a good place to start. It's kind of like when people come to the Lord because they're afraid of the end times. And they're not ready. That's a good place to start. That's very motivating for people to get right with God. And that's God's perfect will for everybody is to be right with Him. To incorporate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ into their lives. But we can't stay there. And the reason I included this is because if we're looking for science to prove the Bible true, science can also prove the Bible false. Again, even though science is proving the Bible true, that then becomes our ultimate authority, right? And I'm warning us against putting anything over Scripture. Even if it seems to demonstrate line for line that the Bible is true, it can at some point turn right around. Ah, but actually not in this case. And now what are you going to do? We can't stay here. It's a good place to start. But we've got to get to the place where Scripture is our ultimate authority. It's got to be our ultimate authority. That's where we discover truth. All right. The Big Bang and evolution. Okay, so. Um, okay, just a real quick, grossly oversimplified version of Big Bang cosmology. We all heard this in, in junior high. We heard it in high school. Um, everything started... Everybody know what a, a zero-dimensional object is from geometry. It's a point, right? Three-dimensional object would be like a cube. Two-dimensional object is a square. One-dimensional object is a line. And when you draw a line, it's actually a two-dimensional object. Technically, I guess three because the graphite has a little bit of thickness to it. But you understand what I'm saying. Mathematically speaking... <laughs> Don't get so technical. A, a line is, is one dimension. It has length, and that's it. Well, a point is zero dimension. A mathematical point has no dimensions at all. And that is what we're talking about when we talk about a point singularity, which is the theory that Big Bang cosmologists start with. We have this zero-dimensional point that contains infinite mass, contains infinite temperature, infinite energy, that contains everything that the universe is going to be made out of. Okay? And some process causes it to start expanding very rapidly. And then another process called the inflationary era causes it to expand a million, billion, billion, billion times faster than that. And then it slows back down. We don't know what process starts it. We don't know what process stops it. But it happened. So, eventually, all of the energy starts to cool and coalesce into subatomic particles. They form atoms. They form molecules. Uh, and eventually, uh, normal matter comes into existence. And from there, this big cloud of gas that's expanding from the Big Bang, uh, it starts to form localized areas of gravity which collapse in on themselves and these are the, the uh, birthplaces of, of stars and galaxies. Okay, so after that, we need, because the Big Bang can only produce hydrogen, a bit of helium, some deuterium, I think some lithium too. But that's it. So we need a process to get all of the heavier elements, because planet Earth isn't made out of hydrogen and helium. It's made out of nickel and iron and rock, right? It's pretty solid. So where does all that come from? Well, that comes from dead, dying stars. The initial first generation of stars were born. They were unstable. They exploded in supernovas. Uh, but the fusion process, uh, the fusion creates heavier elements. So that's where all of the heavier elements come from. Except in very specific cases, it can only form up to carbon, I believe, in fusion. So we need a process to get the elements after that. But that's another story. So, 
about 4.6 billion years ago, there was a localized gas cloud here in, in the Milky Way galaxy, and um, that coalesced and, and came together, formed a star. There were some other, the, the remnants, they came together and formed planets. And then life evolved, and here we are today talking about it. it that, if anybody knows anything about what they say about that, that is, that, that's a gross underrepresentation of their theory. But in a nutshell, it's, it's good for our purposes. In any case, i got to get going. Um, problems. Problems with this. Okay. The singularity. It's a black hole, basically. Black holes are thermodynamic dead ends, which means that they cannot, they cannot change forms of matter, like uh, water can be liquid, it can t- heat it up, turn into gas, cool it off, turns into ice. We'll see that here eventually, here pretty soon. But, uh, no, not ever. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm going to believe that. <laughs> But you can't do that with a black hole material, whatever you would call that. That doesn't happen. Once it, once it becomes a black hole, that's where it stays forever. It doesn't expand and, and turn into normal matter. Okay? So that's physically impossible. By physically, I mean the laws of physics. No one can adequately explain how stars and galaxies form. I mean, these, these are just a few off-the-top points. Um, all that should, should have been produced from the first miraculous event was an ever-expanding cloud of gas. Assuming all of the other things in the Big Bang, we'll just assume they're all, they all happened, uh, all that produces is an expanding cloud of gas. There's no process whereby uh, localized areas of that gas started to contract. Because even if it did, gravity would do what gravity does. It would contract it all the way into a supermassive black hole. It wouldn't form a bunch of millions and billions of stars within a galaxy. It would just collapse everything together. So no one can explain that adequately. Some mechanism would have to be inserted to cause the gas to collapse locally into stars and galaxies, but not so much that the gas just collapses back into a singularity. As gas collapses... And this is true in space as well as on planet Earth. It builds up heat and internal pressure. At some point, the gas will expand back out because of the internal forces acting on it. It needs an outside force to act on it to continue the contraction. We don't know what that is. Okay, our solar system was supposed to have been formed from one of these giant gas clouds, condensing, etc. No one can explain adequately how rocky and metallic chunks were able to just stick together and form planets. There's a law called the conservation of angular momentum. And basically it goes like this. If I put, if I put you on a swing set, I'm sorry, not a swing set, but a merry-go-round. What do you call those things where you just, is it merry-go-round? Okay. <clears throat> they make me sick just thinking about it. But uh, you go on there. As a kid, I loved them. And you get an adult to just spin you as fast as you can. Fast, 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 fast. Eventually, so fast, you, you fly off. Well, the conservation of angular momentum states that if I'm spinning it in this direction, when I fly off, I'm going to be spinning in the same direction, the same speed. That doesn't happen for too long because you hit the ground pretty quick. But how that applies here is that uh, if all of this stuff accreted from the, the, the central star, in our case the sun, It was revolving. The sun is revolving. All of the planets that spun off of that should be revolving in the same direction. But they're not. They're not. There are some planets that just don't seem to know this, and they're spinning the opposite direction. There are some moons that are spinning in the opposite direction. And no one can explain that. All right, biochemical evolution. No process has yet been able to explain the jump from non-organic materials to even the most primitive life form. Information. Where did the information come from? All right, I've got to close it off here. In any case, there are a lot of problems with this, this theory that they say 
explains everything perfectly. It, it, it explains everything. It's proven. It's true. They will teach it like that. They will proclaim it from their pulpits like that. Evolution is true. We've proved it. They've been saying that for decades now. But if you read the scientific papers, and I know they're boring and they're long, but some of the questions and some of the attitudes of the scientists who will proclaim from the rooftop, this is demonstrably true. In their papers, amongst their peers, they don't say anything of the sort. They have serious questions about these theories. They have serious questions about where life came from. The processes that they, that they use to explain uh, even from, from proteins to a, a simple virus, a, a one-celled organism, that is, uh, that's a leap of magnitudes of order high. No one has an has a, has a inkling how that happened. And that's just, that's just one of thousands, thousands of things that are wrong with this thing. And my point is just to say this. When someone comes to you and says, well, science has proved the Bible false. No, not even close. Not even close. But if all, but if all we get our information from is, is the, the news media and our education, the, the colleges and the universities, we wouldn't know any better. Folks, they're, they're pushing this through on a wing and a prayer. Seriously, literally. That's all they got. They can't explain any step of this process. It just happened. And when you read their writings, it's, it's in the form of, not necessarily in the form of, well, this is what happened first, this is it. It's, imagine a scenario where, I can picture a scenario when it's all this imagination and these speculations. Because that's all they got, folks. That's all they got. It takes a lot more faith to believe in evolution than it does to believe in a Creator God. A lot more faith. <clears throat> okay, so in conclusion... There are many contradictions between how evolutionists say things came to be versus how God brought everything to be. I, I gave you a couple handouts that you can look at it in your own time. Um, the order of creation, that's important. Creation, evolution gets it wrong every step of the way. I also gave you a, a little sheet on uh, some of the doctrines of evolution versus some of the doctrines of, of Scripture. Showing how they contradict. They are not reconcilable, folks. The Bible and humanism will never come together. There is no place, way, shape, manner, or form where they can come together into a harmonious whole. They are at odds. It's like God and Satan sitting down and declaring a truce. It's never going to happen. Creation and evolution will never ever be friends. Never. So there's no reason there's no reason to dilute or water down perfectly good Scripture with faulty science. Amen. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, I thank You for the revelation of truth that You have given unto each of us. I thank You, Lord, that You have given us a desire, a passion, a zeal to search these things out. I pray, Lord, that we would know truth and that we would do truth, that we would be apt to teach, that we would study to show ourselves approved. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be able to teach the Word of God to others, to demonstrate, to explain to others why we believe what we do. And when someone comes to us, with contrary information, help us to stand firm, understanding that all the enemy has are lies and half-truths. Tr half we have the truth. We have the Scriptures. We have the, the solid Word of God. And that's what we're going to stand on. 
I give glory and honor unto you. Bless your people tonight. Bring us back at the day appointed. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. I took a little too long. You're dismissed.